0: So now let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the word that you have given us. It gives us great direction from our lives, but it teaches us many things about you as well. And some of these are exceedingly hard to understand. We ask for your help in particular today, for the passage and the study before us is not easy. Lead us by your spirit. Thank you. In Jesus name amen well for those of us that have been Phillies fans it has been quite a week <laughs> groans laughter yes I understand Tuesday evening was a mountaintop experience I think it was Tuesday night they won seven to nothing five home runs they just beat up their opponents We were all feeling mountaintop that night. It was wonderful. The next day they were shut out without a hit, five to nothing. Talk about going to the other extreme. And then most of you are aware that now they have been knocked out of the World Series. They lost. I got to reflecting on some of that and I realized how much life is like sports and many of these things uh, in regards to a situation like this going from the mountain peaks to the valleys overnight, literally 24 hours. Life is like that. I mean, you can be doing just great in life and feeling great about life and the direction of your life and the phone rings and it's the doctor saying, "Uh, we found something, we need to do more tests. Oh. The change from a mountaintop to a valley experience. You think you're doing great, and you're enjoying your job, and you're making a decent living, and the boss calls you in totally unexpected and terminates you for whatever reason. Wow! Reversals in life. Your spouse communicates to you, it's over. You didn't see it coming. Life is filled with reversals more significant even than a World Series. Today's sermon is an excellent illustration of reversal. We're transitioning from chapter eight in Romans to chapter nine. It is an extremely difficult transition because you see chapter eight, we were in the mountaintops. Absolutely amazing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors, we are super conquerors in him. And we're flying high and we're doing well and we know that God can even take the worst things in our lives and use them for our good and for his overall plan and purpose. He will do that. This is amazing and many have called Romans 8 the best chapter in the Bible. But what comes after 8? Romans 9. Now Paul begins to address those who are not so secure in Jesus. People who may think they are secure in God, but they are not. Paul shares his burden for his lost fellow Jewish Companions, People who are Jews, just like Paul was, but they don't know their Messiah, and they are lost. And then Paul opens an extremely difficult doctrinal issue that has divided Christians for years, the doctrine of election. I can hardly wait. Yeah. I'm reading in Romans chapter 9. Verses 1 to 13. Notice the tremendous change of emotion in the passage from flying high and super conquerors. Nothing can separate us from His love to this very difficult passage. I speak the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and in, uh, unceasing anguish in my heart. forever praised, amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are destined from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants. They are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. It is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abram's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad... In order that God's purpose of election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. May God add His blessing to the reading of this passage of Scripture. Those of you who know your Bibles and have studied Romans 9 know what we're in for here. (laughs) Pray for me. This passage contains some hard sayings. Just look at the final statement, you'll see it right away. The text says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, where we are now heading into in Romans, is a difficult section. In fact, some preachers, uh, they can't fit this into the context. They actually think this was a separate writing that was just stuck in the middle of Romans somewhere, a separate letter, they don't see the connection to what we're coming out of in Romans 8. We'll see the connection. It is there. Paul is… Has just finished speaking about the phenomenal security that we have in Christ and nothing can separate us from him. And now he speaks of those who do not have such security in Christ. He makes this point by illustrating with his own fellow countrymen, Jewish people who do not have faith in the Messiah. They are Jews, nationally speaking but they are separated from him. He then introduces this doctrine of election that some have been chosen by God, others are not. What do we do with this? I want to begin in verses 1-5 to by talking about God's blessing on Israel. God blessed Israel, this nation. There is no question about it. Paul begins by saying, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. So he's really heaping it up here. He's telling you, I'm speaking the truth. My conscience is with me on this, and Holy Spirit gives testimony. I have great sorrow unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is hurting over the fact that certain of the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. These are his fellow countrymen. Paul is saying they are lost without hope of salvation. I am amazed at Paul's attitude here. He is in anguish over this. He is really struggling. This is particularly amazing when you realize that Paul in his ministry was often being persecuted by these very Jewish people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he states In summary fashion, some of what he experienced, he calls it suffering at the hands of his own countrymen. He mentions there that five times he received 40 lashes minus one from his Jewish countrymen. The very people that were persecuting him, his heart is in anguish over them because they do not know the Messiah. This is an amazing attitude. In verses 3 and The beginning of verse 4, he says, For I wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul just took it to another whole level. He is saying, I am so burdened for these people. I wish I could give up my salvation. I wish I could be separated from God eternally so they could know him. Wow. Wow. There are people that I love in my life, the people that are close to me, my wife and others. I spent some time this week probing my thoughts on this. Would I be willing to give up my salvation for any of them? Paul is willing to give up his salvation for his enemies. But of course, we know from chapter eight, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He can't possibly do this. He just wishes he could do this. Paul was an expert in Old Testament law. He was a Pharisee, so he knew his Old Testament. He undoubtedly knew the passage of Moses in a similar sort of way that was praying for the same Israelite people. In Exodus 32, when Moses said, Mighty God, just blot my name out of your book and save them in place of me. Paul does something very similar here. His heart is in anguish over those who are lost, even his enemies. Recently, read a story of a church that fired its pastor. You should not take any cues from this story. Denominational head came to town. A leader came to town, and he spoke with the church leaders. And he said, "Hey, I hear you fired your pastor. Yeah, why'd you fire him? Because the pastor was saying we're going to hell." Okay, several months later, this denominational leader learned that the church had hired another pastor, and so when he was in town, he spoke again to the church leadership, and he said, hey, I understand you hired a new pastor. Yeah, so the last one you fired, you know, you didn't like his message. What's this guy's message? They said the new guy's message is, he said we're going to hell. The nominational leader said, well, wait a minute, you fired the last man. You're going to fire this guy? No, 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 no. You don't understand. The last guy, when he said, we're going to hell, he was glad about it. This guy, when he tells us we're going to hell, he weeps for us. Paul's in the latter category here. Even though these people have proved to be enemies... Acts chapter uh, 23, 40 of them at one point committed themselves to no food or water till they could execute Paul. They were after him. And he says, God, I just wish I could give up my salvation so that they could experience you. Wow. Wow. That is pretty amazing. At the end of verse four and into verse five, Paul now sort of reiterates a little bit some of the advantages that the Jewish people have had. He said, God, I just don't, you know, hes as much as saying, God, I just don't get it. All the advantages that they have, and they still have not believed in you, trusted Jesus. He says at the end of verse four and into verse five, theirs is the adoption as sons. And he goes on and he lists eight points of advantage that these Jewish people had. He lists them as adopted as sons. They were his chosen nation, but they didn't choose him. I believe it's the only time in the New Testament where the Scriptures reference the Jewish people as being adopted sons. Paul says it here. I've underlined the eight advantages. The second one is, theirs is the divine glory. They've actually been Glorified as a nation because God selected them and chose them. Through them, the Messiah would come. They were his chosen people. Third, they have the covenants. The covenants that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. A covenantal relationship with God Almighty. They had that. That is an amazing advantage. And when God proclaimed his law to show us our need for a savior. Who did he give it to? He gave it to the Jewish people. What a tremendous advantage. He had them build a temple to his name, a tabernacle in the wilderness, eventually a permanent temple, and in that, the Holy of Holies, where God himself stayed in the midst of his people. What a phenomenal advantage. Paul, sixth of all, mentions the promises that they've received. God promised the Jewish people that a Savior would come. 360-some prophecies in the Old Testament alone. The Messiah would come. It was given to the Jewish people. Then they had the patriarchs, the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacob, what great heroes of the faith. God revealed himself to them. What an advantage the Jews have had. And last, certainly not least, it was through them, their ancestry, that the Christ, the Messiah, would come. What tremendous advantage these people have had, and yet they did not choose him. With this advantage, some Jews were saved. They chose to trust Christ. Some chose not to. Advantages are important, but they don't count for everything. There are people today that have advantages. They live within the sound of the gospel. Somewhere about one in three are in the world are not under the sound of the gospel. It's the work of missions of taking the name of Christ to them. For many of us, we are within the sound of the gospel of Christ. It's an advantage but some choose not to listen. Some of us were raised in Christian homes. What an advantage. But it doesn't make one a Christian. Some have chosen to attend good, good churches. It's an advantage, but it doesn't save you. Some have been through Christian education at some level. Some have been baptized. Some have been uh, received communion. Some have become members of their churches. All advantages, but it does not mean you know Jesus. Advantages are just that, they are advantages. Paul's heart is bleeding for the Jewish people that have not trusted Christ. And I would remind you that these people were his enemies. Does your heart bleed for people who have advantage and do not know the Savior? How about your fellow Americans, whether right now they be Republican or Democrat or whoever they might be? Tuesday is election day and tensions are high. The issues are very, very, very important. But people are more important than the issues. Does your heart bleed for those who hold positions not in agreement with yours? Or are you more focused? on the fact that their position does not agree with yours. Paul is an example here in this passage of someone whose heart bleeds even for his enemies. He is willing to give up his salvation on their behalf. Well, most of us probably have a little more room to grow in this area. Starting in verse 6, Paul now turns his attention to remind us that, yes, The gospel has been there. Some have chosen not to follow the Messiah, Jesus. But starting in verse 6, Paul now says, but in spite of this, God has not failed. Verses 6 and 7, it is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel. What does that mean? Those who are in the nation of Israel, that doesn't mean they're all Israelites. What does that mean? It appears that Paul is making a division here. Those who are a part of a nation versus those part of the nation that choose to follow him. There are Jews and then there are Jews. This is underscored by the second half of the verse nor do nor, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Just because they're in the national line doesn't mean they're followers of the covenant of Abraham and followed to the Messiah. They didn't follow. Not all Jews will be saved. Paul is saying this plainly, clearly. This will bother many Christians wondering if God has failed, if the Jewish people are his people why are they not all saved? Paul seems to be saying they are not. In fact in the last part of verse 7 and on into verse 8 on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned which probably is not the best translation. It is through Isaac's offspring that your you all will be named or you will be accounted for. It is through the message that comes through the patriarchs, a coming Messiah who will die for our sins. This is God's path. We must align with that. In other words, Paul says, it is not the natural children who are God's children. It's not those who are naturally born as Jews. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're a child of God. He differentiates and he says, second of all, it is the children of God. Of the promise, who were regarded as Abraham's offspring. Those who have believed in the promise of God that a Messiah would come and the Messiah would be our Savior. We could not save ourselves. We must have a Savior. Jesus underscored this in John chapter 1 when Nathanael came to him. And Jesus exclaimed, Ah, look, here comes a true Israelite, as though there are those who are Israelites and those who are true Israelites, the ones who will believe. In Romans chapter 2, Paul hinted at this when he said, you're not a Jew simply because you were born into the Jewish race and, and you were circumcised as a male. No, he says you're a Jew when you have been born again and you have been spiritually, your heart has been circumcised. Verse 9, for this is how the promise was stated. Here is the promise given to the patriarchs. At the appointed time, I will return, and Abraham's wife, Sarah, will have a son. And from that son would come a nation. And from that nation, the Jewish people, the promise of a Messiah that would come. This was the promise that each was to believe in. But alas, many did not. Some did Some did not. God had blessed the Jewish people amazingly. Great advantage. But the fact that some of them do not choose Christ does not mean that he has failed. Starting in verse 10, God elects some. Now we enter a passage where God will actually say through Paul that he will elect or choose some and he will not elect or choose others. This will make some Christians angry. Some who are unbelievers will discount Christianity for this doctrine. Before we do that, let's look at what Paul says. Verse 10, 11, and 12. Not only that, but Rebekah, that is Isaac's wife, Rebekah's children had one and the same father. So here is a couple now, a Jewish couple that have two sons, Rebekah and Isaac. They have two sons. They have one son. They have a second son, twins that were born. The passage says the twins were born. They had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. God didn't elect one and not the other because they were... He elected them before they were born, so they couldn't have done good or bad. So that God's elect purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. So it is not by their works. They didn't do good things and were elected. Oh, good guy, I'll, take, I'll pick him. No, God picked them before they were born before they could do good. It was not by their works. It was by His call, Him who calls. And then she was told by God that the older would serve the younger. You would normally expect the younger to serve the older. As Paul introduces this doctrine of election, which he will name in just a moment, he is very clear that election is not based on race, ethnicity, here are two boys that were born to Jew, two Jewish parents. One is a believer and one is not. Race. It was not about their works. They were selected. One was selected and the other was not before they were born. It had nothing to do with their birth order. The first would serve the second born. As Dan read this morning in our call to worship, God will have mercy on those whom he will have mercy would you notice that the text says by him who calls quite a statement to make, him who calls him who calls God reserves the right to do what God wants to do he is totally righteous in what he does but there are people who do not like this about God this is God's Sovereign choice. Some people would say, well, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Maybe I'm not elect and I'll be, I'll, I'll, I, I will never get to heaven. I'm not elect. You can dispense with that question rather easily. The scriptures are clear whosoever will may come, just come. Just come. Come to the one that loves you. Come to the one that died for you and made a provision for your salvation. Just come. Stop asking questions we cannot answer. Like, how do we know who's elected and who's not? It is never told to us. Just come. Simple answer. Jesus made it clear that when he returns, he will separate the sheep and the goats. You don't need to worry about that now. Just come become a sheep. Verse 13 is difficult, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Well, that's a tough one. First thing you need to notice is the first statement, just as it is written. This is not a New Testament truth. This is an Old Testament truth that is quoted here. Paul is quoting the Old Testament. You'll see this quotation in the book of Malachi, chapter one, verses two and three. Paul is quoting an Old Testament verse. The second thing that obviously stands out here is this last word in the verse, hates. I didn't think God hated anybody what does this mean Jacob I have I loved but Esau I hated those of us who have studied biblical studies how to interpret the Bible we know that there's a very simple rule of interpretation it says that the plain and simple reading of the text doesn't seem to make sense you better look for another meaning of the text We generally take Scripture, just face value for what it says, and we just believe it. But every now and then we run into a verse like this and we read it and say, huh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, it contradicts what other sections of the Bible say. I thought John 3.16 said God so loved the world, He so loved the people, He hates some? Those two can't go together. We need to look for a different meaning here. And behold, Scripture is its best interpreter. Scripture helps us to understand this. Do you remember in Jesus when he said in Luke chapter 14, he was asking people to follow him, to give up all to follow him. And at one point he said, if anyone comes to me and he does not hate his father and mother, hate his wife, Hate his children, his brothers, sisters. Yes, hate even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Why would Jesus say, hate my wife? I don't hate my wife. I love her. Why would Jesus say, hate your parents? Again, we look at this and say, this doesn't make sense. Other portions of the Scriptures tell us to love these people in our lives. Why are we told to hate them? How can we love them and hate them at the same time? Obviously, something else is happening here, and this is what is called hyperbole. It is an exaggeration to make a point. What Jesus is saying in Luke 14 applies to what is said here in our Romans passage. Jesus was saying, you need to be so devoted to me as a follower of Christ that the love that you have for the key people in your life pales in comparison to your love for me. He's exaggerating the point. Your love for me is so great, your love for them looks like hatred. God is not willing that any should perish. Jacob have I loved. Esau I have hated. My love for Jacob is so great. My love for Esau appears like hatred. It is such a vast difference. I think this is probably the best way to take the passage. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance whosoever will may come just come He is willing for all to come to repentance John 3, we know John 3.16, but do we know John 3.36? In John 3.36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see that eternal life, for God's wrath remains on him. There is a human responsibility to come. Whosoever will may come. Just come. How does this fit together with election? answer? I have no idea. This chapter is what is called a theodicy. Theodicy means to defend God's ways for what he has done to show that God is just and reasonable and right, even if we can't understand it. Paul is tracing the history of the Israelite people here, the Jewish people, and showing that God's way is just and appropriate. Part of what Paul is defending here is the fact that God has elect some. Election means before the creation of the world, God chose some people to be His, that they would come to faith in Christ. Humanly speaking, this is offensive to many. I understand. Please hang with me for the next two minutes, please. How can we choose God if he's elected us? He elected us, we couldn't help but choose him. How does this work? Why would God do this? Is this not favoritism? Because of the difficulties of passages like this, I've known pastors that Bible teachers that have taught through the book of Romans and they skip this chapter and the verses that follow it because it's tough. We're not skipping it. What is taught here is at some level beyond human understanding. And we're not going to get it all. We'll get parts of it. What God is doing in His book is he is teaching us his plan for the salvation of our souls, and by doing that, he is teaching something about himself. He is teaching us that his ways are way beyond us. His levels of rational thinking are way beyond us. He said in Isaiah 55, verses 8-9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts higher than yours. We'll try to understand as much of this as we can in the verses that are ahead in the future weeks. Right now, let me introduce you to something that might help some of you. No matter who you are and what positions you hold about the Word of God, all people who follow Jesus that read the New Testament scriptures believe in election. It's just what do they mean by election. There are two primary beliefs. Some of you might be familiar with these terms, some of you are not. Just understand where they're coming from. One is conditional election. The other is unconditional election. Conditional election believes that God knew before the worlds were created who would choose him and who would reject him. If you're going to choose him, God elected you. Okay, they're going to choose me with their free will, their human responsibility. I elect them. One would ask of this position, is that a true election? That is part of the problem this view faces. Both views have its problems. I love that this view emphasizes whoever will may come. It is human responsibility to choose the Lord. This is biblical. It's a good emphasis. The second view is unconditional election. It also is biblical and has a great emphasis. Unconditional election says that God sovereignly chose us before the foundations of the earth. He elected us to choose him. And because his grace and his story of mercy and love for us was so great, when we heard it, we couldn't help but respond. He didn't pick us because he knew we would pick him. He picked us, and because of that, We, of course, picked him. The emphasis here is that God chose us before the foundations of the world to be his children. And this, too, is biblical. Some of you are wondering which of these two I hold, conditional or unconditional election. And the answer is none of your business. Actually, that's not true. It is your business. I understand. I love the emphasis of both positions. I do believe that anyone, whoever will, may come. I do believe we were chosen by God before the foundations of the earth. Bottom line, I can live with these unreconcilable facts because I believe that the Bible teaches both of them. So you're saying you're both? I'm saying that the problem is for years, theologians have disagreed about these things and have labeled these things conditional and unconditional election. And people ask you, are you a conditionalist or are you an unconditionalist? It's sort of like asking me, have I stopped beating my wife yet? There's no appropriate answer to the question. I do believe God selected us. He elected us. And I do believe that we have the human responsibility to choose him. And as a human being, I cannot reconcile them. They don't make sense. But they do to my God, and he has no problem with it. His ways are beyond us. The point of these verses that we have studied today is that Paul is distinguishing between natural born Jews and the Jews who have actually trusted Jesus as their Messiah for salvation. Paul is very distressed over those who are natural Jews who have not trusted Christ. God did not fail Israel. He did exactly what he said. He did elect some, all have human responsibility. He would bring a Messiah through them as his elected nation. I do believe, for those of you who are wondering, and you know your Bibles, I do believe that there is a great revival coming among the Jewish people at the end of human history. Many, not all, many of them will follow their Messiah. In future weeks, we will continue to study the verses that are ahead of us. Paul dealing with the topic of election and some other difficult things. We will humbly do what we can. We desire to understand what we can. And that which we cannot, we will simply accept it because we know our God's ways are way beyond us. And he is always right. He is always just. He's got it. In the meantime, whoever will, would you please come to Christ? and enjoy the salvation that is offered. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And now we transition to our time at the Lord's table. Would you take the elements that you've prepared? It's gonna take me a couple minutes to get there. We're not in a huge hurry here. I want to take these moments to do a couple of things. First of all, what we are about to do, we are about to come to Him, to enjoy what He has provided for us, together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the ones, the whosoever wills may come. We have come. We have tasted of the forgiveness of our sins, a Savior who loved us. Oh, we look differently. You look around the room and you look around the globe, Christians from various ethnicities and younger and older and all different appearances. Before Jesus went back to heaven after his resurrection, actually, it started before his crucifixion, the eve of his crucifixion. He took elements from the table and he instituted them as a don't forget what I did for you time. He took the wafer and the bread and he said, it's my body, and he took the, the juice and he said, it's my blood. Keep doing this till I come. Remember what I've done for you. We do this collectively together. We're so different, and yet we all need a Savior, and we've come, whoever will may come. And we've experienced salvation. Now, let's be sure we're ready for this. Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, that is, that has sin in their life, if you eat of the bread and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of sinning against the very body and blood of the Lord. Sometimes I say it's like insulting him. He died for your sin, and then you come to receive his elements, and you have sin in your life. It's sort of like a slap in the face. Clean up your act. Come confessing sin before you receive these elements. Paul tells you what happens if you don't. He says... A man and woman ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread, drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body and blood of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. You are inviting divine judgment. I would like to lead us in a moment of prayer. We didn't do our confession prayer earlier in the service. We're doing it now, coming to this time of communion. Would you bow your heads with me? Let us pray. We bow before you, Father, realizing we are sinners. And we need forgiveness. We are so human. We struggle at so many levels. But we know that you forgive and you cleanse. Whoever will may come to you for salvation, but we also may come to have our sin forgiven after we know you as Savior. John was clear that if we would confess our sins, you would be faithful, you would be just, you would forgive us our sin. This week we have failed, each of us, at some level, perhaps in major ways, perhaps what we would consider to be minor ways. Perhaps we have hurt one another. We have not loved our neighbor like ourselves. We have said things we should not have said, and we have done acts which we should not have done. Forgive us, please. Forgive us that we have not cared for the lost. We have not even cared for our enemies. Forgive us that we have not loved you as we ought, making you the absolute top priority of our lives. We acknowledge other things have slipped in and stolen our attention from you. Forgive us. We know that you will do it, Father, and now because of that, we come to you with purity. Any other sin that might be a part of us, from anger to lust to whatever, Lord, we offer that and say, please forgive us and clean our hearts so that together we may receive of these elements in purity before you and appreciate what you did that whoever will may come. And now, folks, I'll ask you at home as well as here in the auditorium to take the bread, the wafer that you have there. Jesus said regarding this, this is my body which is for you. Do this, receive it in remembrance of me. Thank you, our Father, for the sinless body of our Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed to pay the penalty for our sin. Thank you. And now concerning the cup, Jesus said this regarding the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember him as you drink it now. Remember what he did. Thank you, Father, for the great plan of salvation that you have offered to mankind. Thank you that whosoever will may come. Thank you that you have a grand and glorious plan of redemption filled with divine purpose. Thank you that you have brought us to yourself. We give you thanks for the death of our Lord Jesus on our behalf. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll ask Dan to lead us in our traditional singing at this point after the communion elements of Blessed Be the Tie that Binds. Let's stand. fellowship that we have together in Christ, knowing that we are the ones that have come and received of salvation, in spite of our differences, a very deep bond and fellowship. And now, Father, as we depart from this place, may you, the God of peace, who, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd of the sheep, may you equip us for everything good for doing your will, And may you work in us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. You're dismissed.